Hi, welcome to Conference Live, CFA Institute's coverage of its 72nd annual conference here in London. I'm Jason Voss, CEO of Active Investment Management Consulting. Joining me today on the Conference Live stage is Peter Zihan. Um, Peter is somebody I have followed for years and years, and I've been a fan of his writing for some time. It's quite a treat to be interviewing you. Um, he is, if you don't know, the president and founder of Zihan on Geopolitics, and previously he was the vice president of analysis at Stratform, which is where I discovered your work. Mm -hmm. Um, Peter, for my first question, why should financial professionals care about geopolitics? Well, the primary reason is that the model that we've all used, the idea that rule of law is the norm, that financial transfers can happen frictionlessly, uh, that's going away. Uh, we're going back to an older way of global operations, and in that sort of environment, being aware of geopolitical risk is really the only way to avoid catastrophic loss. Uh, we're, we're, we're entering a period of disorder where everything that we think we know is breaking. Yeah. In fact, I know that a part of your plenary session uh, tomorrow uh, is going to be about that global breakdown. What are the major parts of that thesis, if you would? Well, the, the, the big piece that most people forget is we didn't get to this global order by accident. This is uh, decades of deliberate effort by the United States in order to build up an alliance, subsidize alliance, to fight the Cold War. Well, the Cold War ended 30 years ago. So the Americans have been backing away bit by bit. Donald Trump is more of a feature than a bug. And whoever won the American presidency back in 2016 was going to rule over, rule over the end of the order structure. Right. Uh, now Trump is doing it with a little bit more glee than is perhaps entirely appropriate, but we're kind <laughs> of getting to the same place. Right. So let me ask you a question. Um, you mentioned World War II. I, you know, some people said we were in a post-World War II era, we were in the 9-11 era. It sounds like you're saying there's a new era you have a good name for that? What's your leading candidate? The disorder. The disorder. Oh, okay. All right. And the elements of that are the dismantling of basically the post-World War II, post-9-11 era. What are the features of this new order besides disorder? It's going to be chaos. In the world before World War II, everything was imperial. So you had imperial centers in London and Paris and Tokyo and other places that had their own spheres of influence where they would kind of imprint a certain mode of operation. There were certain boundaries on what you could and couldn't do. After 70 years of the Americans being in charge of almost everything, most countries have forgotten how to do that. So it's going to take two, three decades for everyone to kind of get their feet back under them. And in the meantime, countries that have based themselves around free market economics and global trade and easily accessible finance, they're the ones who are going to be going through the greatest disruptive processes. Right. So we have to have a considerable cascade of failures before anyone can rise from the ashes. That's going to take 20 years. So, and I know as a part of your thesis and part of what you're talking about right now is you believe that there's something right around the corner that's worse than the global financial crisis. What <laughs> is it? What are the elements of it? Why do you say this? Well, something that most folks forget is in the world before 45, most markets went to zero. Uh, when we're talking about things like a Russian collapse or a Chinese collapse, we're talking about markets that we know are broken in the normal way of doing things and yet money still flows in. So when you remove the veneer of respectability and the veneer of international stability, and all of a sudden countries have to trade on their own merits. The idea that any of these locations can be financial destinations evaporates pretty quickly. Uh, if anything, they're gonna be sources of absolutely monumental capital flight. In China, conservatively in the last seven years, we've had three trillion flow out already. So the Chinese are already voting with their checkbooks. It's just a question of how long it is until the people in the Western world who oftentimes manage the flow of money both ways, registers that. And when that happens, you're talking about a financial catastrophe that is unprecedented in the modern world. So 
to tease that out and to summarize, you're saying your thesis is uh, global capital flows uh, are basically based on reputation, right? And you think only that, a slight over exaggeration. Yes, slight over, <laughs> yeah, slight over exaggeration, and that the markets are broken, but money flows there anyway. Do, do you have you identified as a part of your work uh, some possible catalysts? I, I know I don't want you to put all your <laughs> chips on one. What are the catalysts where you're, well, that you're looking for? Well, let me just kind of give you uh, four quick ones. Uh, number one, we know that as the Chinese system is facing greater financial and economic problems, one child means that consumption-led growth, is, for example, is impossible. They're going to become more bellicose in an attempt to rewrite the region. Yeah. If the Americans aren't involved, that means the Japanese have to do something. And if there's one country that we know in world history knows how to fight a naval war, it's Japan. Yeah. Uh, number two, the Russians are dying out as a people. They're going to be moving west. Ukraine is just step one and Europe is not ready. But when Europe starts to get ready, the country that matters is Germany. So we're looking forward to the rearming of the German system. That should make us all a little nervous. Uh, number three, without the Americans in the Persian Gulf, the Saudis are taking matters into their own hands. Syria is an example of what that looks like. So we can look at a broad Middle Eastern battle royal, but perhaps the most problematic is the United States. Sure. Because here's the country that is guaranteed everything. Here's the country that has a Navy more powerful than everyone else is put together by a factor of 10. And all of a sudden it has no stake in the system. So its military is now withdrawn. It's, the US is at its lowest deployment level since the 20s. And it's already had three years to rest recoup, rearm, and any country that is dumb enough to poke the United States right now kind of deserves what they're getting. Yeah. But the U.S. is now entering a system where it sees disruption as better for its interests than order. And we're just not ready to process that. So let's take half a step back, right? So that's a political military sort of a story. At the economic level, is it your belief that at the economic level, part of the geopolitical rumblings, the bellicose Chinese the uh, westward-reaching Russians, are they are they scheming and plotting to get rid of the petrodollar? I mean, I, I see rumblings of that. And it looks <laughs> like there's some machinations to remove that. And if so, what's that world look like? There's lots of countries that, for whatever reason, are disappointed or dismayed with the role that the U.S. dollar has in the global system. But until there is a competitor to that, sure. it's really not going to go anywhere. So in the case of the Russians, everybody in Russia assumes that it's just gonna be the ruble, which of course no one wants. Uh, the Chinese <laughs> threw out the idea of it being the yuan for a while, and when they started to loosen their capital controls, a trillion dollars fled in less than a year. Right. And they slammed those right back on, so they know it's not them. Right, sure. The European Union, the euro, that was a possibility until they started confiscating insured bank deposits. Right. And so everyone who could move their monies out of euro did. The next country down is Britain. Yeah. And no offense against the Brits, but if there's one thing that the rest of the planet agrees on, it's that the pound should never be in charge of anything again. So the Brexit, or not the Brexit, but the petrodollar is here to stay is what you're yes, saying. Yes, for the foreseeable future. All right, so let's transition. One of the things that I find valuable about geopolitics and why I've always found, uh, followed it closely is that the way to think about it is different than forecasting. Even though I know you make forecasts, it's really about scenario analysis. Talk about how, and this is a total non sequitur to some extent, but uh, I wish financial pros did more scenario analysis, less forecasting. What are the elements of how you do your planning and how uh, you do your prognostication? Like, what are the elements of that process? Well, it's mostly about finding strengths and weaknesses within a system and what are the pillars of support or the places where it's kind of eating through the parchment uh, in order to find out you know, 
where the, the, the vulnerabilities in the system are. I mean, we're in a world right now where everyone is kind of trading on confidence. Confidence can be very fragile, as we saw in 2007 to 2009, sure. as we saw in 2001, as we saw in 1989. And if everyone is betting on global stability because they just assume the Americans are going to continue what they've always done, you have to take that pillar away and see what happens. And you can do that in any international or national system. So there's a lot of that going around with Brexit right now. How much of the Brexit, or the, excuse me, how many of the British, how much of the British economy is dependent upon European strength versus European weakness? Sure. Is dependent upon their position vis-a-vis -vis the Americans. And we're starting to see cracks going throughout the British economy based on what's holding and what's not. Because all of the assumptions are no longer true. Yeah. So a statistic that you may appreciate, given the sort of fragility uh, thesis that you just put forth and the method of understanding things. I had an intern years ago mm -hmm. uh, who I had conduct analysis on what is the market. Um, and the analysis was what percentage of the market trades on any given day. And most people tend to think when you hear the stock market was up X percent today, that it's some large proportion. And I've done it with audiences over the years. It turns out the average, going back to like 1994, is 0.3% globally. <laughs> that's it, better than I would have thought. Right, right, right. right. That's still pretty high. Yeah. Right? Like that's a pretty high turnover within your shares in the stock market. But nonetheless, if you have an increase of 0.2%, that's a 66% increase in some sort of activity. So mm -hmm. the, the system is really sort of in that sort of dynamic tension anyway. Um, anyway, I thought you might well, appreciate the that. the terrifying little bit of that yeah. is that assumes that nothing's going to zero. Yeah. Because we haven't had a lot of that since 1945. That is absolutely the case. You're correct. So of those factors that you named, which do you, what's your, what do you tee off of? Like, what's your day look like? How do you assess <laughs> the news? How do you digest that big fire hose? How do you filter and sort that? Well, several years ago, my team and I built a, a model that involves everything from the American position on the world to global demography to uh, energy markets, U.S. shale versus everybody else, to be specific. Sure. And we usually spend about half of our day looking for something to prove it wrong. Right. And the last big thing that we found was wrong was the shale revolution. It was proceeding much more rapidly towards a much lower cost point than anything we had anticipated before. Yeah. Uh, once we've got that in hand, it's just a matter of mid-course correction. Interesting. So let me ask you a question. I, you know, anytime you're anticipating possible futures, it's not just about analysis and data because data by definition is dead on a variable, right? What degree does intuition play in what you do? Well, I'm an intelligence hack by yeah. training, so that's always going to be a big piece of it. Uh, as a rule, though, the shorter the time frame, the more important that is. The longer the time frame, the more the data drives everything. Yeah. So uh, one of the big frustrating things with Brexit is, you know, what are the Brits going to do? Well, they don't know. Yeah. Theresa May doesn't know. Parliament doesn't know. Corbyn doesn't know. And so judging what the Brits are going to do when there's not going to be an election or a second referendum anytime soon, that gets really frustrating. Sure. But figuring out where this has to end based on restrictions with, of how the EU makes policy, that part's easy. Any way to train your intuition, or you just get good at it and you become, you know, the cognizant of like different. Go, go ahead. The, the broader the net, the better. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, the more net. of a specialist you are, the harder it is going to be to guess what people do. Yeah. Interesting. That's an interesting comment. Um, so my final question: How do you evaluate the success of your approach? Is it just the predictions, or 
Like it may be, you may be waiting 10 years, for example, if you're waiting for the Chinese collapse. I've That's heard that fair. prediction for a while. Absolutely. Right? Now, the, the time frames are definitely the hardest part. The value for me, and I think the value for my clients, is not necessarily the specificity of the projections, but it's about allowing people to have a better sense of context for sure. whatever the situation they're looking at. I help people make informed decisions. What right. they do with that information, that's entirely up to them. I get it. Well, Peter, thanks very much for being here. I truly appreciate it. Pleasure. Um, thank you also for joining us. Copyright 2019, all rights reserved. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.